In 2000, and, <clears throat> excuse me, in 2004, 15-year-old uh, Gina Gisa uh, woke up feeling kind of, kind of sick. Uh, she woke up uh, with a tingling in her left arm. She went on to school, and that day she went to, to volleyball practice, and at, at one point she saw two volleyballs coming toward her. She started seeing double. Within a week, she started experiencing flu-like symptoms, and they, her parents took her to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, it's not the flu, and sent her back home. Uh, over the course of the next week or so, her left arm started twitching uh, involuntarily. Her speech became slurred. Uh, she began to, to stiffen. Her body started stiffening. So they took her to a neurologist, and, and he couldn't figure out what was going on. And so they then admitted Gina to the hospital. And over the course of the weekend, she just went downhill very rapidly. And at this point, for some reason, she doesn't really know why, but her mother mentioned the bat. What the, what's the bat have to do with it? A few weeks earlier, they had been in a church service with open windows, and a bat had flown in and was bothering everybody, and one of the ushers had knocked the bat down with a broom, and Gina was uh, an animal lover, and so she went and picked up the bat and took it outside, and as she was taking it outside, it bit her on the finger, barely scratched the skin, nobody really thought anything about it, they went about their business. Well, when the doctor heard this, his face just went completely white, he left the room, he came back, in a few moments, he said, I'm sorry to tell you that your daughter has rabies, and there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do about it. Uh, see, if you're bitten by an animal with rabies, you have a certain window in which you can get the vaccine, uh, and, and you should be fine. But if you wait till symptoms have shown, and certainly if they've shown to the extent that Gene has excuse me, it's shown up, there's really nothing that can be done for you. And so the parents kept asking, wasn't there anything that you can do? And so the doctor finally said, well, there is this one thing that, that people have theorized that I've been wanting to try. Uh, and, and what it was, and I'm not going to go into great detail because I don't understand all myself, but basically uh, some people think that rabies attacks the brain, and that's why it ultimately kills you. Some people think that it just kind of short, short circuits the brain. Uh, and, and that just confuses everything, and eventually you die from all the other symptoms. Your body's producing antibodies the whole time you have the disease, but the disease progresses so rapidly that the antibodies never have time to kick in and deal with the disease. And so this doctor thought, if I can put her in a medically induced coma and keep her alive long enough for her antibodies to build up and fight off the disease, then maybe she'll live. And so that's what they did. And she lived. Um, in 2004, she was the only person that we knew of at that time who had ever survived rabies without having been vaccinated for it. The only person. Uh, but here's the point. She cheated death. She cheated death. That doctor cheated death. Uh, this was on a podcast I was listening to this week, and the, the, the little information about it said, in this short story, a Milwaukee doctor tries to knock death incarnate off its throne. And he did. Right? He won. He, he beat death. Well, not really. I mean, he did have a small victory there, but he really only delayed the inevitable. See, Gina Gisa, like all of us, is still going to die. She may cheat death eight more times, but eventually death is going to win. Uh, 
Some of you remember several years ago the, the, the Beltway sniper attacks uh, around the Washington, D.C. area. Listen to what one columnist wrote about those attacks. We are always looking to make some sort of sense out of murder to keep it safely at bay. I do not fit the description. I don't live in that town. I would never have gone to that place or known that person. But what happens when there is no description, no place, no body? Where do we go to find our peace of mind? The fact is, starving off our own death, excuse me, staving off our own death is one of our favorite national pastimes. Whether it's exercise, checking our cholesterol, or having a mammogram, we are always hedging against mortality. Find out what the profile is and identify the ways in which you do not fit it. But a sniper taking a single clean shot, not into a crowd, but through the sight, reminds us horribly of death itself. Despite our best intentions, it is still, for the most part, random. And it is absolutely coming. It is absolutely coming. Now, we may all like, be like Gina and, and hold it off for a while, maybe even cheat it a few times. But death is absolutely coming. And so the question then, is there any real way to defeat death? Is it possible that when we say, when someone passes away, when we say, well, she's in a better place now, is it possible that those are more than just words that we use to comfort ourselves in the midst of tragedy? Is it possible, as Dostoevsky once wrote, that all suffering will be healed and made up for? The resurrection of Jesus Christ says yes. The resurrection of Jesus Christ says yes, and that's what we're going to read about this morning. So if you would, look with me at God's Word, uh, Luke 24, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, 
mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him that they, they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let me pray for us. Uh, God in heaven, uh, this is your word, and I pray that you would open it to us this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes that we might see Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, three things here. Three things. What does the Bible teach about the resurrection? Why does it matter? And how can I believe? What does the Bible teach about it? Why does it matter? And how can I believe? First, what does the Bible teach about it? <coughs> Excuse me. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, some mainline churches and certainly some secular professors and teachers will say, that there wasn't a physical resurrection. That uh, after Jesus' death, that his, Jesus' disciples felt that they experienced his presence. Felt like he was still somehow with them. And, you know, it makes me think of how Christopher Robin told Winnie the Pooh when he goes off to school, I'll always be with you. And, and it's, it's, they're saying that's what the disciples were experiencing. So after a few years, they came up with these resurrection stories to express uh, symbolically represent the feeling they had that Jesus was still with them and among them but look at the text uh, it sounds silly to me too uh, look at the text uh, verse 6 verse 6 he is not here but he is risen remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And then go down to, to verse 30. <clears throat> when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then verse 35. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And then in verse 41, which is not before you... Uh, 
it reads, have you anything to eat? Jesus said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. I mean, what symbolic truth would that represent? Jesus was hungry, I guess. Um, what's the higher truth there? Sometimes uh, intellectual proper folks are offended by the supernatural aspects of Christianity and they want to make it acceptable to modern man. The gospel stories that were like, look, man, this is what happened. This is what happened. You can believe it or you cannot believe it, but this is what happened. A bunch of Galilean fishermen are not going to make up a bunch of stories about what they symbolically felt. All right. That's just not the way they would have operated. Either this happened or it didn't happen. And, and it, you better believe that they thought it had happened, especially when they were willing to go and to die for this story. They were ready to, to be crucified themselves for the truth of what had happened on Easter Sunday. Verse 39 is not in your bulletin either. Jesus says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Touch me and see. These stories aren't here because the disciples are somehow trying to hold on to the past. They're here because they happened. The Bible presents a literal, physical, bodily, historical resurrection. Jesus really died, and then on the third day, he really rose. This is what the Bible says about the resurrection. Now, why does it matter? Why does it matter if Jesus actually rose from the dead or not? Uh, Martin Luther once said that, that justification was the doctrine on which the church stands or falls, and, and I agree with that, but I would say that, that the resurrection is the historical event on which Christianity stands or falls. Uh, look, it doesn't matter whether George Washington cut down that cherry tree or not, right? Like, well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I, I don't really know. It doesn't affect who he was. It doesn't affect American history really in any way. But Christianity falls apart if there is no resurrection. I mean, if there is no resurrection, we should cancel services and all start making tea times at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. It would be a lot better use of our time. Quit reading your Bibles. Quit loving your neighbor. Quit caring about anybody. It doesn't matter. Uh, sometimes you'll hear people say, and, and, and maybe you think this way or, or you have friends who think this way. Uh, they'll say something like this. I could never believe in Christianity because I'm offended by what the Bible says about homosexuality. Or I'm offended what the Bible says about sex. Or I'm offended about some of the ethical teachings of the Bible. And if Jesus, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, well, don't worry about it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the Bible says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, think about the Apostle Paul. You talk about somebody who was offended by Christianity. The Apostle Paul was offended by Christianity. He was helping to round up Christians and kill them. But when he saw that it was true, when he saw that Jesus had been raised from the dead, it didn't matter anymore that Christianity had offended him. He had to change the way he thought about Christianity because he saw that it was true. If Jesus wasn't raised, there's no point 
and paying attention to anything the Bible says. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you have to pay attention to everything the Bible says. Uh, secondly, the resurrection matters because it means that death doesn't have the final say. It means that death doesn't have the final say. Uh, earlier this week, over 100 Christian students were, were killed for their faith at a, at a uh, university in Kenya. Uh, Thursday evening, Will Miller, one of our members here at Grace, uh, got word that uh, his cousin's daughter, who was three years, three years old, had died from a rare disease that was only diagnosed three months ago. You know, for every small victory, for every Gina Gisa, for every small victory over death, it always manages to win in the end. Uh, Jack was showing me this week the, the, the death clock. You guys have seen the population clock. Uh, he's got how many people are being born and how many people are dying. And at 3 o'clock Friday afternoon, on Good Friday, when I looked at it, 100,000 people had died on Friday already. And 14 million people have died already this year as of Friday. Uh, Bertram Russell, the, the, the atheistic philosopher, said one time that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And the whole temple of man's achievements must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. And sometimes it feels like it, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels like it. We lose someone. Uh, we feel our own time on earth getting shorter. It feels like it's all going downhill. It, it feels like it's all hopeless. And I think the two men on the road to Emmaus that morning felt a touch of that hopelessness. Verse 21, they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had, we, had, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We thought Jesus was the one who at least for a little while was going to come and make things okay in our corner of the world. And now that hope was gone. On Good Friday at the cross, it feels like Bertram Russell was right. It feels like there's nothing that can be done to, to, to slow down that slow slide into death and oblivion. But then on Easter Sunday, Jesus appears, and it's like there's it, like there had been a, that flat line on the heart monitor, and there's a little jump again, and there's hope again. The resurrection means that, that Bertram Russell was wrong. The resurrection means there's hope for the universe. The resurrection means there's certainty that death won't have the final word for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. The resurrection matters because it means that death doesn't have the final say. Uh, thirdly, the resurrection matters because it means the gospel's true. The resurrection matters because it means the gospel's true. Here, here's what I mean by that. What's the gospel? Here's what Christianity is all about. I deserve to die, not just to, to, to suffer physical death, 
but to suffer eternal death, eternal separation from God because of my sins, for my sins committed against the holy God. That's what I deserve. But Jesus has gone to the cross to pay that debt for me, to, to take the punishment that I deserved, to pay my bill, so to speak. But how do I know that God's accepted the payment? How do I know that what Jesus did was enough? I mean, I got a lot of sins. How do I know that his death really covered all of them? 1 Corinthians 15, we read, If Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Romans 4.25 tells us that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised to life for our justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is your proof of purchase. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is your receipt that the debt has been paid and that the payment has been accepted by God the Father. If, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ in, as your Savior, the resurrection tells you that Jesus has done enough. Jesus has done enough. And your sins are forgiven. Your greed, your gossip, your lust, your prejudice, your anger, your lack of love, your self-centeredness, the bill has been paid. And it no longer hangs over your head. And no longer hangs over my head. You're free. Free to, free to rejoice. Free to rest. Free to confess. Free to forgive. Free to forgive. Because Jesus has done what needed to be done. And the Father has said, it's enough. It's enough. Your debt's been paid. Uh, fourthly. The resurrection matters because it's the historical event on which the church stands or falls. It matters because it means death doesn't have the final say. It matters because it shows us that the gospel is true. And it matters because it means we can trust God even in the darkest hour. It means we can trust God even in the darkest hour. There's never been a darker hour than when Jesus Christ hung upon the cross. The disciples don't understand what had happened. They had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. But in the midst of that darkest hour, when nobody knew what was going on, nobody but God knew what was going on, God was at work to save his people from their sins. In the midst of the darkest hour ever, God was at work to save his people from their sins. And if you can trust him when it looks like he has completely and utterly turned his back on his son, you can trust him when it feels like he's turned his back on you. The resurrection means I can trust the Father even when I don't understand what he's up to, what he's doing. The empty tomb says you and I can trust him. Where do you need to trust him? Where do you need to trust him this morning? Well, we looked at what the Bible says about it. Uh, we looked at four reasons that the resurrection matters. How can I believe it? Maybe you're struggling to believe it. 
Maybe you have a friend who's struggling to believe it. How can you believe it? How can they believe it? Look at, let's start here. Look at verse 25. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Uh, think about this. Jesus is risen from the dead. He meets two of his followers on the road here. And what does he do? He has a Bible study. Hey, this is a great time for a Bible study, guys. Let's open our Bibles and, and, and look at the scriptures. But that's what it says. It says, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. He had a Bible study and he showed them how all the Old Testament ultimately was about him. That all of it was driving to Jesus Christ. That all these plot lines, they connected in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, this is, what just happened is the point of the whole thing. It's the point of the Bible. How do I come to believe? How does anyone come to believe? How does my friend come to believe? Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Uh, St. Augustine, uh, early theologian of the church, lived a, a pretty wild life. Uh, his conversion was brought about when he heard the words, take up and read, take up and read, and he began to search the scriptures. Uh, Tim Chester tells a story uh, of a young man, young man named Daniel who had lived a pretty rough, pr pretty rough life uh, himself. And I won't go into the details, but eventually he was put in prison for killing somebody. Um, he was found to be actually insane and he was locked up in a mental institution for two years he lived in a cell by himself with no toilet uh, and nothing but a straight jacket to wear for clothing and a daily cocktail of 40 drugs and that was his life and then eventually he wound up in the cell with another person and this other guy in the cell with him didn't believe in God, but he did believe in the devil. You've got to be a cellmate with. Uh, this man wanted them to read the Bible together for 40 days so that they could learn more about the devil. All right, there's your, there's your next women's Bible study. Um, so, but but, but that's, that's, what he wanted, that's what he wanted to do. And Daniel didn't really want to do this. But the other man's eyes had been damaged and he couldn't really read. And so Daniel agreed to do this. And so he read the Bible out loud to him. They were going to read it for 40 days. And so to do that, he's reading 59 pages of the Bible a day. On the fourth day, this is what he comes across in Deuteronomy. The word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And Tim Chester writes that at that moment, both men felt God powerfully with them at that moment. The other man didn't want to continue. 
Like he's like, oh, wait, wait, I don't want to, I don't want to keep reading anymore. But Daniel continued reading alone. After a few days, he asked God to release him. Immediately, he was free from his cocktail of drugs and he was within his right mind. Within two years, he was released to do a menial job in the hospital. And then a few months later, he was allowed to leave. Daniel was changed by grace. And then he committed his life to ministering to marginalized people, to people in psychiatric institutions and people who were dying from AIDS. And it all started with him reading the Bible to a blind man who wanted to learn more about Satan. The Word of God. The Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Um, if you're wrestling with whether to believe this, if you know someone who's wrestling with whether to believe this, then my encouragement to you is take up, take up and read. Take up and read. Read the Word of God for yourself. Take up and read or come and sit. Come and sit in a church where the Word of God is being proclaimed week after week, where we take the Word of God and we try to say, okay, here's what this says and here's what this means for us today. Take up and read. Come and sit. Listen to the Word of God and maybe Jesus himself will convince you that he's risen from the dead. Uh, secondly, how, do, how can I believe this? How can a friend believe this? We need to pray. Look at, I just found this very interesting. Look at verse 16. This is when they first bump into Jesus here. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now go down to verse 31. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. If you're going to see Jesus, if your friend's going to see Jesus, God has got to open eyes. Your eyes have to be open. My eyes have to be open. Their eyes have to be open. And so if I had one thing that I could ask us for uh, as a congregation to pray for, it would be pray that God would open eyes. Pray that God would open eyes. Bug him about it. Plead with him about it. Keep knocking. Keep praying that God would give sight to those who cannot see. Pray. And then last thing. And this is kind of unusual. How can I believe? How can a friend believe? Eat together. Eat together. Share a meal. Uh, if, if you're not a believer and you're trying to figure all this stuff out, grab some, some go sit down and have a meal with some believers. If you are a Christian and you have a friend you want to expose to the gospel, invite them to come and eat with you. Now, why am I saying that? Look in verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then go down to verse 35. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. How he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
There are, there are three ways the, the New Testament completes the phrase, the Son of Man came. All right, three ways. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You know what a third one is? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man came to serve. The Son of Man came to seek and to save. How did he come? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Here's the verse. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, one writer put, said this. He said, Jesus spent his time eating and drinking a lot of his time his mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening he did evangelism and discipleship around the table with some grilled fish a loaf of bread and a pitcher of wine jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners why is that i think i think it's because meals represent friendship they represent community. They rep represent welcome. Jesus ate with sinners, with people who didn't believe and people who did believe. But he did this to demonstrate grace, to demonstrate welcome, to demonstrate the gospel. So two things. Make use of meals. Make use of meals. Uh, use them as a way to demonstrate grace and welcome and use them as an opportunity then to speak about grace and welcome uh, secondly who are the sinners the people on the the wrong side of the culture war that you would refuse to eat with that you would refuse to welcome you know, there was something happened in Indiana the last week. Uh, I don't know, maybe y'all have heard about that. It seems to have been in the news. Um, one of the, the kind of sidebars of the, the thing going on in, in Indiana was that there was a pizza place. Uh, I think it was Memories Pizza. And somebody, a reporter came to the lady that runs the pizza place and said, uh, would you serve gays and lesbians if they came to your pizza place? And her answer in so many words was, we wouldn't cater that wedding, but if they came here to eat, uh, we, would, we would serve them if they came here to eat. And it just kind of blew up and people got really mad at, mad at uh, this pizza joint about this. And there's all this kind of violent rhetoric on the internet. Uh, and then people on the other side raised like a million dollars to give to this pizza place that had, been, had to shut down basically because they were expressing a Christian conviction uh, against homosexual marriage. And, you know, that, I, I can't get fired up about that. Like, I want to support the pizza place and say, like, I'm, I'm right there with you. If you don't want to lend credence to, to something you don't agree with, then, then I'm for you. And I, I get kind of mad about that. But then I was, I was thinking about this text. I was like, okay, what if, what if that lady was in my congregation? What if I was her pastor and she came to me and said, what should I say? What should I do? And I just think about, here, here's Jesus. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. 
Jesus Christ came to serve, not to be served. The, the, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. With who? With tax collectors and sinners. And so I, I think I would say to this woman who, who runs the pizza place, not that anybody's going to ever ask you to cater a wedding with your pizza place, but if they do, if they do, I think what you should tell them is, you know what, I don't agree with this, and it goes against my convictions what you're doing here, but I'd be glad to serve you. I'd be glad to serve you. And maybe sitting there in the, the pizza buffet, she might have the opportunity, the chance to explain why the Savior she serves calls her to move towards people she disagrees with and not away from them. To move towards sinners and not away from them because she realizes that she's a sinner too. It's the only way we're going to take gospel to our culture is not to constantly be fighting it, but to realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior and we need to serve the people around us. And maybe in doing that, maybe in doing that, we'll give people another reason to believe in the resurrection. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, um, you came to seek and to save the lost, which is us. And sometimes we forget how lost we were. And so I pray that you'd help us to remember who we were, and yet your willingness to come after us. Father, make us those who would go and to love and to serve others. Father, make us people who would pray. Make us people who would not be afraid to open the word and to speak the truth. God, I pray that, that this morning even you might open eyes, that even amongst us, eyes might be open, that we might see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.